Turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus 17, as we continue our series to live in the presence of God. And I'll just give you the, the heads up as we get started, that we are going to be bouncing around to a number of different passages. So if you're comfortable doing that, then go ahead and turn to those passages with me when the time comes, because I, I like for you to be able to see it on the page. But if uh, that, it's easier for you to just listen and follow along, that's fine too. So don't feel like you have to do that. Uh, but we're going to start in Leviticus 17, talk about the text there and what's going on in this passage. And then from there, there's one idea that's kind of the core central idea. And I want us to trace that a bit through scripture. And of course, as always is the case when we're reading our Old Testament rightly, it will lead us to Jesus. And so that's where we're headed this morning. Leviticus chapter 17. We've just finished the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, and now in chapter 17, we're going to talk about blood and life. Blood and life. All right, Leviticus 17, let's jump in right at the beginning, and I'll read the first nine verses and then talk about it for a couple of minutes. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord." So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people." So the basic rule in those verses is telling us that sacrifices must be brought to the tabernacle, not made elsewhere. So verses 3 and 4, when it tells us that the person who does this is going to be considered blood guilty, that's saying this person is going to be considered a murderer, which is a pretty high standard here that's going on with, with what God's instructions are about these animals. Now, it helps to realize this animal, this animal slaughter is sacrificial in nature. This is not just talking about um, killing something for the purpose of eating it in your home. This is killing something for the purpose of sacrifice. That kind of gets clearer in the last part of what we read. But if you think about that idea, if it is a sacrifice, then what does it represent? If it's a sacrifice, then it represents a person. And therefore, killing it in a manner that's different from what God has prescribed for sacrifices is going to be considered like murder. Because you're treating this as a person, the sacrifice that represents a person, so killing this person will be treated like 
murder. That's kind of the logic there. And this kind of sacrifice that's not made to the Lord and it's not made at the tabernacle is outside of God's law, and so it's not a valid sacrifice. If you were to think about Genesis and after the flood, what God says to Noah, he says this. He says, behold, this is Genesis 9, 9 and 10. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you. God's establishing a covenant, not just with the people, but with the animals. They're party to the covenant. The birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So the reality is you must worship God only in the way that he commands, and worshiping elsewhere would open the door to false worship, like the people who are offering to goat demons, as the passage mentions here. And God will not tolerate any rivals to his worship. Pick it up with me in verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Any one also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off, and every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he's a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity." So that section of the chapter draws out for us this very direct connection between blood and life. Why is there a connection between blood and life? And that's really the question that I want us to think about this morning. But here you see that draining the blood from the animal is intended to be kind of a graphic reminder to the people of this connection between life and blood. So they're not supposed to eat blood and of course, not drink blood, but they're not supposed to eat anything that still has the blood in it because the blood is connected to the life. So what does that mean? Why is blood connected with life? Well, in a number of places, God's people are forbidden to eat blood. This isn't the only place. We read just a minute ago from Genesis chapter 9. Let me go back a couple verses there. Genesis 9, 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So the connection there again, life and blood. And the same reasoning is here in Leviticus 17, verses 11 and 12. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I've said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. If you take the time to notice what sacrifices 
being talked about here, these are sacrifices of land animals and birds. So verse 2, ox, lamb, goat. Verse 5, it's a beast of the field. Verse 13, a beast or a bird. And the question then kind of can pop into our minds, why not fish? Fish have blood, right? Fish are included in the list of what's clean and unclean. And fish have blood. If you cut a fish so that it's bleeding out and you put it back in the water, it's going to bleed out and it's going to die because loss of blood will lead to loss of life, even for a fish. So what's the difference? Why aren't they included here? What, why is the focus here on birds and beasts? What do birds and beasts have in common that fish do not that will help us to understand why the blood is connected to the life? Well, there's a connection with breath. Breath. In the ancient world, fish were understood not to breathe air, while land animals and birds do breathe air. Now, I understand in our modern scientific way of thinking of things, we say, well, they take in oxygen through their gills and all of that. Don't get hung up on modern science, okay? Think in biblical categories or kinds or associations. When, when God's dealing with the world, he's, he deals with it, the big fancy word would be phenomenologically, as it appears, with the appearance that it gives. So we think of fish as not breathing air because they're in the water, but birds and beasts do breathe the air. So there's a, a kind of a difference there. And God's using those kinds of categories here. Turn with me back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I want to trace this through a couple of chapters in Genesis so that you can see this. Genesis chapter 1, of course, this is the account of the creation. And we're going to start in on the fifth day. Okay, the fifth day of creation. So this is Genesis 1, and we're going to start in verse 20. Okay, Genesis 1, and we'll start in verse 20. And here's what it says. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So here we have birds and fish together in a category. And the reason for that, what happens on days one, two, and three, the, God creates spaces that then get filled on days four, five, and six. So what God does on day one matches what he does on day four. On day two, he separates the waters below and the waters above, so he's creating the atmosphere. And then day five, he populates those areas, right? So the birds in the air and the fish in the sea. Day three, he does the dry land, separates that out from the waters. And then day six, those that live on the dry land, the animals and man. So here, day five, we've got birds and fish together, but notice that when the birds are described, sometimes they're described as birds of the heavens, but it also says, the end of verse 22, let birds multiply on the earth. So the birds are associated with the earth. 
Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So there we have the land animals. Now, when we pick it up in verse 26, we have man. So verse 26, then God said, let, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man has dominion over all three realms there. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so far we've got those three categories. We've got the sea, we've got the air, we've got the earth. And then we get down to verse 30, and it says, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So birds and beasts have the breath of life. That's not said about the fish. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So God breathes into man the breath of life. So birds and beasts, including men, are all terrestrial. They live on the earth. At least in terms of this category, they're land or air dwellers, meaning that they breathe air. And so they can be treated together, for instance, chapter 1 and verse 30, in the issue of plant food, as God gives them that plant food. Okay? Now go over to chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6. Here we have God letting the world know about the flood that's coming, and he's giving instructions to Noah, and you know that story. Look at Genesis chapter 6 and verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, of course, that makes sense. A flood isn't going to kill the fish. But God specifically categorizes together all of those creatures that live on the earth as ones that have the breath of life and will die in the flood. Go over to chapter 7 now and look at verses 14 and 15. So verse 13 tells us Noah and his family went into the ark. Verse 14, they and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. So we have all of the creatures that live on the land and the birds Verse 15, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. So again, they're categorized as having the breath of life. Now jump down to verse 21. 
And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Now, I'm guessing you didn't catch it in there because I didn't catch it the first hundred or so times that I read that passage. But there is one of our Oreo cookie structures there. We've talked about that idea before that in Hebrew, when you want to emphasize something, you put it in the middle and you have two things on the outside that are mirrored and that focuses your attention on the thing in the middle. But this Oreo sandwich has 11 layers to it. Okay, so let me just put it up here. I don't know if you can read that if you're in the back, but um, these are the verses that I just read and the thing in the middle is with the breath of life. So let me read the verses again while you look at this and you'll see what I'm talking about. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man, and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. So you see the structure there. That's not accidental. The author is emphasizing something for us, and he's pushing our attention to see that these are all the things that have the breath of life. Already in the first seven chapters of the Bible, this concept of the breath of life has come up over and over as God is the one who has given the breath of life. Now, fish don't have it. Okay, They're not included here. And so as you kind of think through all of that, I just want you to realize as, as we continue, as we move on to some more passages, that air or the breath of life and blood are associated in the ancient Near East. The categories in Leviticus 17 of sacrifices where God is telling us don't eat the blood because the blood has the life, those categories are the ones that scripture has said have the breath of life. So blood and the breath of life are associated. And of course we know the blood carries oxygen and, and when we breathe it, that, that has an impact on the blood and that goes all through the body and all of that. But I just want you to see the association is there in scripture. Okay, so what is the significance of this connection? Well, to shed blood is to stop the breath of life. Okay, to shed the blood is to stop the breath of life. The breath of life is given by God. It's God who gives life, and it's God's domain to end life. And so even ending animal life in the Old Testament law was regulated by God because of what it signified. God's the one who gives life. God's the one who takes it away. Let me, and, and when you hear the word breath, remember that in Hebrew, there's one word that is translated as breath, spirit, or wind. 
All of those together, that's one word. And so every time the translators come across that word, they have to pick one. Are we going to translate it wind or spirit or breath? But whenever you read that word, breath and spirit and wind, are, they're more closely associated in the mind of the biblical authors than what we typically think when we're reading it. So you have to work to kind of keep that connection in your mind. When you read one of them, have the other two kind of there in the back of your mind. Spirit, breath, and wind. Let me read for you just several different verses you don't need to turn to that'll help you see the association here of breath and life. Job 12 and verse 10. In God's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Job 27, 3 and 4. As long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils... My lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Job 14, 14 and 15. If God should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. That's a very interesting one. You hear what that's saying? If God decided at any given moment to recall to himself his breath or his spirit from all over the earth, all flesh would die. Psalm 104, 29 and 30. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. This is a passage that is talking about the new covenant. which is ultimately brought in by Jesus. And so it's picturing the people of God after the work that Jesus accomplishes. Okay, Ezekiel 37. It's, if you look back in the end of 36, the promise is about God putting his spirit in his people. But when we get to the first 37, Ezekiel, or chapter 37, Ezekiel has a vision. Let me start right at the beginning of Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out into, in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. 
And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord of God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he goes on, verse 11, to say, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Now, as you get to the New Testament, you realize that when he talks about Israel, he's meaning the new Israel, the true people of God, the church, which includes Jew and Gentile. But this is the people of God, who in the new covenant are given new life. And how does that new life happen? It's the spirit of God. It's the breath of God that gives them life. Now hold that thought in your mind and jump with me to the New Testament, to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. When we jump in in John 20, we're jumping in after Jesus' death and resurrection, and this scene is where he is meeting with his disciples after the resurrection. I'm going to start in verse 21, John chapter 20, verse 21, and I'll just read these two verses. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, Remember, Jesus was sent by the Father, and the, the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the point where the Father indicated that Jesus was sent by him, was at his baptism. And what happens at his baptism? The Spirit of God descended on him. Okay, the Spirit of God, or the breath of God, or the wind of God, or whichever way you want to translate it there. The Spirit of God comes on him and empowers him for ministry. And as you read the Gospels, it says over and over and over, and Jesus did this in the power of the Spirit. And he went here and healed these people in the power of the Spirit. And it's the Spirit who empowers him, who gives him the life, so to speak, to do the things that he's doing in this ministry. Now he's telling his disciples, as the Father sent me, I'm going to send you. And look what he does in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, they don't actually receive the Holy Spirit at this point, but they will very shortly after Jesus ascends to heaven. And when they do, I'm sure their minds go back to this moment because Jesus is symbolically giving them the Spirit. He's breathing life into them. Turn a page or two over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And look at verse 8. This is before Jesus ascends. He says to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So he's sending them out as his witnesses and they'll be empowered by the Spirit to do this. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 
And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. This is symbolically the Spirit of God, or the breath of God, coming and enlivening them, empowering them for the ministry that they've been called to. Jump down to verse 16. Everybody's wondering what's going on as they witness what happened with this wind and with them speaking in tongues of different nations afterwards. And Peter says, but this, he says, uh, verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So Peter directly attributes this to the spirit being poured out. Go down to verse 32. Peter's continuing to speak and he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So the coming of the Spirit or the breath of God is poured out by Jesus because Jesus has received it from the Father. This is the new life in the new covenant. Now, holding all of that in your mind, as you think back to what we've talked about in Leviticus, the prohibition against eating blood is because the life is in the blood that has to do with breath, the breath of life. Specifically, the breath of God. God breathed life into creatures. And the creatures that are specifically said to have the breath of life are the birds and the land animals and man. So the birds and the land animals, those sacrifices, you're specifically told, don't eat the flesh with the blood. Why? Because the blood is the life. Why is the blood the life in these creatures but not the others, because these are the ones that are said to have the breath of life. Breath and blood are connected. And it's the breath of God, I believe, that is the reason that the life is said to be in the blood. That leads us then, of course, to Jesus. Because Jesus' blood is the true source of life for us. Now, if you were in pagan nations back in the day, oftentimes they would drink blood. Why? Because drinking the blood of an animal or even of another person was considered to be a way of getting their life force in you because life and blood were associated. It's been a while since I've given you a Harry Potter reference but your, your very evil villain in the Harry Potter stories, Voldemort, right, is known to do what? To drink unicorn blood. Why? Well, the explanation that's given is the blood of a unicorn will keep you alive even if you are an inch from death, but at a terrible price. You have slain something pure and defenseless to save yourself. And you will have but a half-life, a cursed life, from the moment the blood touches your lips. 
So in those books, the practice is considered to be evil because you are taking a life to preserve your own. God's people were never to drink sacrificial blood because these animals were not the true source of life. What's the true source of life? The true source of life is Jesus. Go with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. And if you just want to listen to these verses as I read them, that's fine. But they're all right close together, so you can follow along in the book of Hebrews if you would like. I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. These are verses that we've actually seen a couple of times over the last couple of weeks as we talked about the Day of Atonement. Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm going to read verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why? That's not the true source of life. That's why. But these animal sacrifices were to point us to Jesus, whose blood actually does give us life. Go back a chapter to Hebrews 9 and verse 12. Hebrews 9 and verse 12. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Jesus is actually effective to bring about life and holiness. Go back to chapter 10 and verse 19. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, okay, it's the blood of Jesus that is the actual effective atonement that opens the way, the access to God. And now go over to chapter 12 and verse 24. Hebrews 12, verse 24 where the author tells us about Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the same one Ezekiel was speaking of, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vindication because he was murdered, but the blood of Jesus also has something to say. And it says that sins are paid for. And therefore, justification comes and life comes through the blood of Jesus that makes atonement. So then chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The blood of Jesus actually makes us holy. The blood of bulls and goats could never do that. The blood of Jesus is actually effective. It has the true source of life. And unlike the pagan nations or the unicorn blood in Harry Potter, Jesus freely gives his blood. And this is a key difference. John chapter 10. You can just listen as I read it. 
John chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. Listen to what Jesus says. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus' blood is unique. It's not like the sacrificial animals. It's not like the unicorn in Harry Potter whose blood was taken in order to preserve someone's life. Jesus' blood is freely given, voluntarily. So Mark chapter 15, when Jesus is dying on the cross, it says this. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He gave up the breath of life. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Why does that happen at the same time? When Jesus gives up the breath of life, at that moment, he takes his blood into the eternal, the true tabernacle in heaven. He goes into the very throne room of God and he offers his own blood with the true source of life, the breath of life that he just gave up on the cross. He offers that in God's presence for an atonement for our sin. That's why it's effective. The blood of bulls and goats could never do that. And it's that life blood that now gives us life. When he made that offering as our representative, we died with him. And when he was raised, we are raised with him. We live because he gave up the breath of life and shed his blood for us. Now in just a minute, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. With that in mind, I want you to listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Imagine being one of the Jews standing there as Jesus said this. You know Leviticus 17. You know that there's a restriction that you're not supposed to eat the flesh of an animal with the blood in it. And yet here is this man saying to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you won't have life. 
Jesus offers himself willingly. No one is sacrificing him against his will in order to preserve their own life. He lays down his life. And because his blood is the true source of life, and because he offers his blood willingly, it's appropriate for us, symbolically this morning, to drink his blood. His blood isn't magical, like how the pagan nations thought of blood. Instead, it's the true source of life because it is the atonement offering of Leviticus 16. Now, the wine or the juice that we're going to use this morning doesn't transform into Jesus' blood. It's a picture. It's a picture of his blood. And when you take in the bread, which represents his flesh, and the wine or the juice, which represents his blood, you're doing that in obedience to what Jesus says because you're recognizing that this is the source of life. Not the bread and the wine or the juice. Jesus' blood, that's the source of life. We have life because of him. Because he's gone into the greater tabernacle, the one in the heavens, and offered his blood as an atonement for our sins. And the Lord's Supper is a graphic picture of that fact. As Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me.